Good afternoon. I'm Henry Jenkins, the co-director of the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. And I'm standing in for David Thorburn today, who is the director of the MIT Communications Forum. If David was here, he'd very much want me to be signaling to you how excited we are to see you here today and to let you know this is the first uh, communication forum for the term. We have a really great schedule of events coming out throughout the term. Let me signal just two events uh, that you might want to know about in the next month. The first is not a communication forum event, but a CMS event. Next Thursday at 5 in the Status Center, we're doing an open house to showcase the work, the research projects that are going on in the CMS program. Uh, the, programs, the, the event's called Converging Media, Games, Literacy, and Culture Research Fair. And we hope you'll drop by and just talk to the students see some of the projects that are going on, get a sense of the work that goes on through our program here at MIT. And uh, we look forward to seeing some of you for that. And that the following week, uh, or I guess the week after that, Thursday, March 1st, 5 to 7 p.m., we're going to be doing a discussion with Frank Moss, who is currently the new director of the MIT Media Lab, about what's going on at the Media Lab, some of the new directions their research is taking, and so forth. And I will be sort of having a joint conversation with Frank Moss about, about those topics on March 1st. That's also in this room, 3270. Today's event, Remixing Shakespeare, is an exciting one for us because it's an all-home team event. It showcases the outstanding work of faculty in the MIT Literature Program. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be a member of the MIT Literature faculty. and. So I get to meet our remarkable group of in-house Renaissance uh, scholars on a regular basis. And I've over the years learned a great deal from each of the speakers on the panel today about Shakespeare, about media, and about many other matters. Uh, the mod I, my job is simply to turn this over to the moderator today, who is Mary C. Fuller, who was one of my colleagues in literature. Indeed, we started teaching at exactly the same time. So we've been peers and colleagues for as long as either of us have been at MIT. She teaches uh, really interesting courses that touch on uh, early modern literature in a variety of ways. And uh, she's the author of a book, and I'm going to get it right if it's safe, Voyages in Print, English Travel to America, 1576 to 1624. Um, with that said, I'm going to turn it over to Mary Fuller. Uh, this, this microphone's a little unfamiliar. Is that, does that sound about right? OK. So I'm also happy to be here, and I'm also standing in for someone, Jim Buzard, um, our chair, who couldn't be here today. But it's a pleasure to be here and to get to introduce two, if I may say, both charming and distinguished colleagues. Um, Diana Henderson is professor of literature and author of Collaborations with the Past, Reshaping Shakespeare Across Time and Media, of A Concise Companion to Shakespeare on Screen, and Passion Made Public, Elizabethan Lyric, Gender, and Performance. Um, she has modestly not mentioned that she's also in the process of editing the third generation of a benchmark anthology in our field, Alternative Shakespeare's. She's also an active participant in MIT's partnership with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Peter Donaldson is also a professor of literature. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and director of the Shakespeare Electronic Archive. Since 1992, the Shakespeare Archive has used computers to develop new ways of studying the text, image, and film records of Shakespearean publication and production. Now, Pete's bio, which I've just read to you, is, if anything, more modest and understated than Diana's. There is much, much more that could be said. But I think in, in the case of both these people, their work will speak for itself. So I'll yield the floor to Diana. 
Okay, well, thank you for coming. I see some familiar faces. I see um, some unfamiliar faces. I hope that for those who do know me, this won't sound too familiar, because what we're doing is treading over a whole lot of territories um, that I've worked on in more depth, and I'm going to be rushing about uh, amidst that world. Um, this is called Shakespeare Remix, and I've seen two pieces of publicity for the event, and they went in two different directions. One was into the past, into the idea of the pre-contemporary um, anticipations of what we talk about today in terms of multimedia, cross-media, media convergence, all these ways in which we're playing with um, the difference and relationship among media. Uh, this was most overt in the homepage advertisement for the Macbeth mashup. I have nothing to do or say about Macbeth. Do you? No, not today. So that was just totally false advertising. But I'll try to live up to part of that, um, the other side of that, which is to sort of set the stage of the pre-contemporary. But I'm going to mix it with the other uh, advertisement I saw, which really emphasized the now, the moment, what we're up to now with Shakespeare. Um, first, the sort of historical roots. I guess when I hear people talking about all these cool new things with digital and other multimedia, I'm, I'm almost always forced to say yes, but it's nothing new. That is, it is new. Of course, the, the digital world is new. But the idea from an artist's perspective, at least, a performing artist, of just staying in one particular domain, uh, well, Shakespeare sure didn't. Uh, he w wrote, he wrote lyric poems, he wrote narrative poems, he also wrote for the stage. Uh, and so did his contemporaries. Uh, it's quite remarkable, the amount of crossover and convergence amongst different art forms of that time. Uh, the visual arts, when the, when the theater moves indoors, the mask form is, if anything, a more spectacularly visual uh, than it is a, 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 a verbal performance, even if poet Ben Jonson is writing the words. So it's nothing new in that regard. And for artists, as I'll talk about a few clips uh, over time, even from the beginnings of the 20th century with the coming of screen media, uh, a lot of actors are moving back and forth. I'm going to show a little bit of Emil Jannings in a few minutes, um, the great German actor who got his training with Max Reinhardt, the great theatrical impresario at the early part of the century, running the best theater in the world, most people would say, um, and then going into the film industry back and forth. So that kind of crossover experience from the artist's perspective is nothing particularly new, although in terms of conglomeration and the business model, I think the manipulation of those artists' work is perhaps uh, hit a new phase, and that causes some consternation for people who are interested in the individual artist and the individual creative impulse. And seeing a lot of that played out in issues about copywriting in terms of remixing, in terms of who owns a piece of creative work. Uh, and again, that issue has, has a long history as well. So I'm here to sort of set the stage, and I think Pete will really focus in on this moment more specifically. Um, just to take us beyond the moment of Shakespeare, though, creating his art, which was already a collaborative art form, of course, from the start, theater, um, working in a stage where sometimes people would come and rewrite your work a little bit, like Middleton coming and adding the Hecate speech into Macbeth uh, after Shakespeare seems to have retired to Stratford and then quickly died. I don't think it was a cause and effect that it, it was the adding of the Hecate speech to Macbeth that he, he died so young. Um, but nevertheless, that was not out of place and it's not so exceptional and Shakespeare wasn't so exceptional 
in his relationship to the stage. Um, he was certainly not the genius figure, the scriptural god that he became 200 years later. Um, I guess what I'd like to, one of the areas I'd like to call attention to, though after he becomes, uh, you know, he's been dead about 50 years, that's a good amount of time to become monumentalized to some extent. In the restoration, when the theaters reopen, uh, the way that people felt they had to keep Shakespeare in the repertory usually involved pretty extensive rewriting. And one of the things I've been interested in lately is the way in which, while we talk a lot about historicism, uh, we have not quite historicized ourselves so intensely that we make a space for Shakespeare remixed in the sense of rewritten as being an acceptable and appropriate thing to do uh, in the restoration. The most famous example of this is the notorious rewriting of Nahum Tate's Lear with the happy ending in which King Lear gets the throne back and Edgar and um, Cordelia have a nice romantic relationship and it's a happy ending. Now, most people just cite that and say, oh my God, what were they thinking? Um, and to mock it, but it's an interesting thing to put in its own historical moment. You start seeing the fractures, the tensions in that text that that rewriting speaks to a, a generation that has lived through and is perhaps living through again, they think, uh, a case of the a usurpation of the throne or the killing of the king, perhaps, again, which has happened in the lifetime of their parents. It's not so silly, in other words, in that context, to be worried about showing an abdication which leads to the disintegration of the kingdom. To put those things back in context, then there's another step, though. We can do one historical move, which is to say, okay, for their own moment. Of course, you need to, to make things topical or address your moment. But then, how do you explain that for the next 150 years, people kept performing? If you went to the theater, you saw Tate's Lear, not Shakespeare's Lear. And it's not that they didn't know Shakespeare's Lear in print, because there's Johnson, Sam Johnson, in the middle of the 18th century, publishing the original ending. They're still choosing to watch Nahum Tate, given a choice, and they're not worried about the king, at least some of those years, they're not worried about the king, um, until, until 1837, when Charles McCready puts back the original ending on the stage. So when you read anything from all the romantics where they're saying, I'd rather sit in my study and read King Lear than see King Lear on the stage, what actually they're talking about is whether they'd rather read Shakespeare's King Lear in text form or see Nahum Tate's altered revision on stage, well, that makes a little more sense to me, and it may not only be then an argument about the comparative merits of the stage versus print. Um, it certainly is that, and we've known that for a long time, but it's not only that. So to keep these remixed versions, these modified versions in mind, I think is important. Um, Another thing that the Restoration did was add a lot more song and dance. And again, this can seem a little incongruous when you first hear it, but Macbeth the musical, right? Um, it it's, sounds preposterous. But how far is that, after all, from Othello, the, uh, if I can make it work, Othello, and I'm showing you just a second of Othello, if I get it working, yeah.
I'm trying. Ah! I'm sorry. Oh, you're gonna get to see it twice. Got him. Oh, that's a good place to stop. You might recognize him from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, we'll just keep his image there. The Italo, I wanted to just play that because very few people go around and mock the idea that Verdi had the nerve to make a musical version of Shakespeare in the 19th century. It's just close enough to us um, and it's just a masterpiece enough for us to allow there to be this shift of emphasis to the song. Notice how intensely different, though, it has to be as an art form. And Andres, in the back of the auditorium, could, can tell you much more about this during the Q&A, about the way one has to revise the story, the words, to fit the new medium of opera. And then, of course, we're seeing it now filmed in the 20th, 20th, 20th late 20th century. Um, you need a big part for Desdemona. Right? Everybody knows you go to see the 19th century grand opera, you better have a good soprano part. Um, you better have some nice, wonderful opportunities for the chorus. Um, so we have the chorus coming up with Desdemona into the 3-3 of uh, Shakespeare's text, if you're reading it. Uh, a chorus that doesn't exist, obviously, uh, in the original. It helps. It makes musical variety and dynamic. We also get, in Zeffirelli's version, which you were just watching, uh, consciousness of looking at all through. Every bit I could show you would show a consciousness of people looking through windows, through different keyholes, the idea of spying, which is, of course, a crucial part of Othello, what you can believe of your senses and what you hear and see. Uh, he, he works those thematic things in, but is this still Shakespeare? If it's not the actual language, it's rewritten. Um, in libretto form, is it Shakespeare when you so modify all sorts of dimensions of the story? Well, yes. I mean, most of us would say yes. And yet we, we aren't usually that charitable with some of the earlier works. So that's one area where I think our historicism, while it's much valued these days, still has a ways to go. It's also hard, though, to let go of laughing at the comic ending of King Lear. I understand why we want to hold on to the jokes, because they're, they're pretty fun. Um, a second piece I'm, I'm now going to show you is, how, okay, is this Shakespeare when you don't have sound <laughs> at all, if you, when you don't have words, when you just have title cards, as in the silent Othello version in the early part of the century. Um, obviously, most of us think this is one of the reasons Shakespeare has remained so important, as he's been remixed across different cultures. The Germans think they actually know Shakespeare around eight the 18th century, they think they get Shakespeare better than the English do, and they may be right, um, in terms of certain dimensions of what is at stake in his stories. Um, is it still Shakespeare? Obviously, yes and no. Let's just look at it now, possibly, with everything working from the start. moment where they are over the dead body of a Desdemona.
body contrast. Those of you who are familiar with the playtext of, Othe of Othello will recognize a little alteration of the fifth act plot line there. Um, it's, it seems very strange in a lot of ways, I can tell from the laughter, in terms of the uh, exaggerated acting style coming, people have pointed out Emil Jennings is a little over the top. On the other hand, if you see the whole, rather than just seeing that moment, I think the authenticity of his inhabiting that size of characters is quite remarkable over the course of, of the film. Um, it's not a mistake, in other words, that he's the guy who got the first Academy Award. He came over to Hollywood and won the first two years of the Academy Award before going back and starring in The Blue Angel when sound came in and he could not master Hollywood language. Um, so major actor, very impressive in certain ways, but also clearly a freedom with the, the, the plot line uh, in this silent version of Shakespeare. Uh, a lot of the signs of German Expressionist film, the big crowds, the lighting, uh, Caligari meets Blue Angel. I mean, it's kind of an amazing document in its own right. Uh, but what interests me, too, is the way it it makes perfect sense if you know the hundred years of telling the story of Othello in various forms in the 19th century that lead up to this piece. It's not just one person's choice to remix Shakespeare in this particular way. I'd argue it's from the time of, my friends will get bored at this point, Sir Walter Scott, who writes a novel called Kenilworth, where he takes the story of Othello and adapts it to the English Renaissance world of Sir Robert Dudley and Queen Elizabeth and Amy Robeson. When he takes that story and retells it in novel form, we have, again, a remixing of, of lines from Shakespeare that show up in a new, a, a new medium, the novel. Um, but then people start using his story and putting it on the stage, and they start rewriting his ending to make it happier because they don't like people dying at the end. So you end up in the later part of the 19th century with this interesting way in which contemporary versions, stories that are analogs to Shakespeare, start creeping back and forth in relationship to those texts that we now call the canon. Um, because the canon also implies a kind of elevated literary action that takes place in the 19th century that makes Shakespeare at some points, maybe by the early 20th century, seem more analogous to the Bible or to the Constitution than to other works of popular art, collaborative art. Um, that tension is there right through the 19th century, and I think it forms how people think they can play with narratives like this, the inherited stories. So I wanted you to see that. I also wanted to point it out in terms of another sense of Shakespeare remixed uh, is to point out the use of blackface there in both the first two clips I used today. What it means to talk about this only in terms of the form I think is totally inadequate. Formal mixing, I wanted to point out as well, and certainly in my written work, I spent a lot more time on this, on the socio-political dimensions of that remixing when you retell the story of Othello in the 19th century with a man in blackface in the world of institutionalized world trade in slaves. It's a different world than it was in Shakespeare's day. What do you, what's the obligation to remix the way you do Shakespeare? What's the obligation to think about that? Um, it's hard for me to think about Emil Jennings without remembering that not only does he do all that wonderful acting, but then he goes on to be the premier actor, one of the premier actors for the Nazis, and indeed is a, uh, praised in 1941 for his service to the Nazi state. Um, that's 
hard to disconnect from that, how I watch that piece of a clip now. Um, I would show you if I had time, I won't. This bit, that's enough. I bet you recognize them. It's uh, Liz and Dick. It's, it's The Taming of the Shrew. It's um, celebrity remixed with Shakespeare to help market the careers of two of the more romantically amusing and tempestuous actors of their time. So that you get another remixing, which is the off-screen and the on-screen worlds um, that are hard to separate in this particular case. If I showed you a bit more, and those of you who heard my earlier talk, you can go watch it on MIT World, so I won't re rehearse that, of bits from Taming will know the way uh, Zeffirelli repeatedly also uh, appeals to other contemporary film genres, including Help, the Beatles film, but also um, horror films. And I show a bit of how he holds a knife. Burton, as Petruchio holds, not a knife, sorry. It would be a knife in a horror film. It's just a stick here. But it's the same action across her neck as she's in this uncomfortable position. Issues of gender are raised by the remixing and the remaking of Shakespeare over time now that we have actresses playing parts like Kate's rather than little boys. And boy, is she a, not a little boy. Having thought about that horror thing and about another, in other words, crossover, and what I'm trying to do is show how malleable the various ways of thinking about Shakespeare can be in terms of where are the boundaries of Shakespeare and the way they play into all sorts of binarisms that we often assume popular high culture, uh, different genres, different socio-political moments, how it's the reason why some of us find ourselves spending a whole lifetime looking at Shakespeare is not just because of particular playtext, but it's because of these four centuries of how the remix allows you a reflection on really culture at large. Let me just show you a little bit of Campbell Scott's Hamlet. This is probably not as familiar to, to most people because it didn't get a theatrical release. This is the bit that would be Act 1, Scene 5, where he uh, sees Daddy. Well, he's just seen Daddy, actually, and now he's telling his friends to believe what he saw. Maybe. Come on. What is it about my hand that it doesn't like? Sorry? Okay. Thank you. Uh, touching this vision here, it is an honest ghost. That let me tell you, for your desire to know what is between us, or master it, as you may, and now, good friends, as you are friends, scholars, and soldiers, give me one poor request. Yes, my lord, we will. Never make known what you have seen tonight. My lord, we will not. Nay, but swear it. In faith, my lord, my lord. Nor I, my lord, in faith. Upon my sword. We have sworn, my lord, already. Indeed, upon my sword, indeed. Swear. <laughs> Boy, sayest thou so? Art thou there, true penny? Come on. You hear this fellow in the cellarage? Consent to swear. Propose the oath, my lord. Never to speak of this that you have seen. Swear by my sword. Swear. Hick, it will be quite well. Then we'll shift our ground. Come hither, gentlemen, and lay your hands again upon my sword. Swear by my sword. Never to speak of this that you have heard. Swear by his sword. Oh. 
Well said, old mole. Can work on the earth so fast? Oh, worthy pioneer. Once more, remove, good friend. Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. Therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your er, philosophy. But come. Here, as before. So help you mercy, how uh, strange or odd some air I bear myself, as I perchance hereafter shall think me to put an antic disposition on, that you at such time seeing me never shall with arms encumbered thus, or this head shake by pronouncing of some doubtful phrases. Well, well, we know, we couldn't if we were. What's ambiguous giving out? To note that you know aught of me. This do swear. So grace and mercy at your most needs help you swear. Swear. <gasps> rest, rest, perturbed spirit. I swear, my lord, by heaven. No, he's too fun to let go. That one, um, I hope you see creature features in there. I hope you get a sense of what he's done, though. It, it's quite witty. Um, people say to me, you lose things when you have to adapt Shakespeare to the screen, because so much of the text has to go, well, that's true. But you can find fascinating analogs by doing things like um, changing lines about the cellarage, the area under the stage, which in Shakespeare's original on a bare stage would have been very funny, because, you know, trapdoors and things underneath the stage. How are you going to do that in a modern realist context? Uh, well, you go to the beach and you put daddy in the sand. Um, he also says, I mean, one of the things that interests me is getting the artist's perspective on this. We can interpret all we want and find connections. I could sit there and do a little riff on uh, how the lines across his hands, and then he's going to be blood brothers with the two after that, invokes for me Oliver Parker's uh, 1995 um, moment when Iago and Othello also are bound in blood in the hand. But I've taken to actually talking to the artists who make these things and finding out they didn't realize like that happened in the other film, and trying to get a little control on my wild interpretive uh, capabilities. Not to say that we shouldn't. My point is not that we should stop doing our interpretive work, because even if he didn't see it, I'm seeing it, and that's part of the culture that created it. And I swear, in some cases, I swear, that there are echoes that he may not know he's put in there that do come from other versions of Shakespeare that have come through his life. After all, this is a guy, Campbell Scott, you're watching, who has played Hamlet on stage several times. Um, and a lot of history goes around the theater when you're playing Shakespeare, uh, including other Hamlets and other renditions of Hamlet. Um, I just wanted to end by going to somewhere which, again, is about as far as you can get, but is very self-conscious. Um, about playing with Shakespeare for the modern moment, his modern moment, 1982. This is Paul Um and it's just too much fun uh, not to point out the way in which you can bring together the musical uh, heritage and the Shakespearean heritage. This is set, this is Cassavetes playing um, a version of a Prospero figure, a modern guy who leaves New York City He's become cynical about the whole thing and goes off to a Greek island. Amongst the characters there is Raul Julia playing Calibanos, the local shepherd. And at a certain point in the film, this is uh, where we go, is to Calibanos' personal moment, playing his music. 
Shakespeare. Um, clearly, no, I, I, I think it's one of the best uses of the blur between non-diegetic and diegetic sound on, on film I have seen. It's five years after Scorsese's rather failed um, large musical New York, New York with Liza and, and, and uh, Robert De Niro. It's clearly about something other than Shakespeare's story, but I would argue that it gets the spirit of Caliban wanting to get back to, to the to be a master of the world. It does it in a way that absolutely makes this film fun to watch. There is no script lines from Shakespeare, and yet I think there's a lot of virtue and impurity in these cases. So that's where I'll leave it, in the world of the mixed and impure as a virtue. Absolutely wonderful. I think that's maybe the best moment in Shakespeare's <laughs> film uh, of all. Let's see if I get my computer to go. <coughs> I may have to log in. Windows is shutting down. So I'll have to, I'll have to log in. Uh, while I'm doing that, I want to say a couple of things. Uh, like Diana, I was, was a little surprised by the publicity. I thought I was going to talk about my work, and I didn't know it had anything to do with remixing. So uh, when I saw the title, I said, uh, does my work 
in fact have anything to do with me next day. I thought, yes, I can see that. And I'll talk a little bit about, about why. Um, and, uh, and then I had another question. Uh, is there any, so there is remixing in Shakespeare film, and I want to talk about it a little, and this is an absolutely fabulous example and a wonderful one of doing Shakespeare material in a, in a what I would think of it as a serious disciplined, the discipline being in the comedy, but also being in the sustained way in which the way uh, Mazursky and Raul Julia are doing this uh, it follows through on their original idea as a, as a piece of Shakespearean interpretation. I didn't know if there was any, any remixing in Shakespeare after I gave it some thought. I might have missed uh, something. That is, remixing in more than the occasional sense. This is in Shakespeare himself. And um, by remixing, I would mean something like this, where two, I, two sources, one from Shakespeare, one from Broadway, right, are held together and made to work together over time in a disciplined way, right? So that, you know, I'm, and I wonder, does Shakespeare ever do that? He certainly uses sources, but maybe he absorbs and recreates and gives the sources out rather than keeping two levels together in your mind. This is my source, let's say, Holland's head. This is my play. Look at, the, look at the difference, look at the dynamic between the two. I'm not sure that happens, it doesn't. The, the closest example I could find was something like the mask elements in the Tempest, what used to be called the mask elements, but you might say there's a kind of double thing going that, that the mask is in some sense, the Tempest is in some sense a mask, in some sense a play, and the tension between those two rather well-defined forms creates these wonderful moments throughout. So I was thinking of, uh, so, so my answer was maybe, and I have more thinking to do, but I, I didn't uh, really come to a conclusion. But I do think it was useful to use some very old literary terms to think about remixing. Um, that is, if we know the literary terms better than the remixing terms, and of course it may be the other way around. But uh, one, one thing you could think about is uh, uh, not to say remixing is metaphor, it isn't. But you could think of, a, but metaphor holds two things in relationship, right? The thing you're talking about and the thing that holds its meaning. My love is, is a rose, let's say. So that's a metaphor. Then you can have a more extended form that might be called a conceit. So my love is a rose and has lots of petals and uh, smells good and there's thorns and uh, you know, maybe later uh, uh, it fades. You know, that's a, a conceit, an extended metaphor that picks up various aspects of the two things being held in comparison. These are pretty uh, basic literary stuff. And, and the third might be thought of as allegory, where for a whole, well, the romance of the rose or something, where over the course of a whole work, there is a tension between two defined, uh, two defined things. I suppose in Dante it would be the journey through the underworld and as he claimed anyway, the meaning of his allegory. Uh, uh, um, the, the, the one level is the state of souls after death, the other is God's justice. So you keep those two in mind as you're reading and they come out differently uh, depending on which level you're, you're thinking about. So I thought that, that was a useful um, way to think about it, especially because many of the youth products are remixes in a rather strict sense. That is, when people who respond to them when they're put online like them is often because 
they're holding the two things together and making them work together, right? Whether that's video or whether that's uh, music. And I know very little indeed about these things, but I, I start, I've been inquiring into them for a week or two anyway, and they're fascinating. And, one, and my son is a, is a fan of uh, hip hop culture, which uh, I think I had had too many musical generations already by the time my son was born to then get involved in another one when he was 14, but he kept saying, Dad, Dad, this is wonderful. Now he's 38, and finally I'm starting to listen. Uh, but so he said, you're going to talk about remix. Well, sit down and listen to uh, uh, DJ Z Trip, you know, for that's my favorite, he said. And, and so we, we started listening to those things. And there was astonishing uh, works of art, in my view, that held two, you know, often two known kinds of things in, um, together. And of course, it's done in records, done live. Uh, with two turntables, right? So that you're turning the one turn, maybe you've got little bits of tape on one and, and something else or the other, but actually making them work together in real time and then recording that. One of them I liked was a remix of um, uh, uh, Janis Joplin's Oh Lord, uh, Let Me, uh, how does it go? Won't you, Won't you Buy Me a Mercedes Benz? It's a wonderful, satiric, self-mocking, celebrity song links up with celebrity culture in a certain way. Uh, uh, with a hip hop uh, drum beat uh, in the background and, uh, uh, and mixing with that at all times. And, and it was a wonderful kind of chemistry between the two tracks is set up. So that she's kind of parodying her own group and her own status and others who are worse than her in, in, in their uh, participation in the celebrity culture. But then, there, then there's this other consciousness and, and other um, input into what then becomes uh, a work of art in itself made out, of, made out of two others. So I wasn't sure Shakespeare did that, but there, I think there are um, uses and in, in, in things in, my, in, the, in the films that I've looked at uh, relatively more carefully that really are kind of remixes. And so I wanted to do three things. One was to say, I don't really know whether Shakespeare remixes, and the second, to show you examples of uh, remixing as part of films that interpret Shakespeare along the lines that Diana has, but with a more, perhaps a more foregrounded media uh, thematic. And I wanted to show you in particular the uh, uh, pieces of the um, Almereda Hamlet, where Hamlet is a videographer and uh, amateur video maker and the use that he makes of, of uh, remix video. And then if there were time, just to talk a little about my entirely amateur and uh, newbie and novice uh, uh, viewing of uh, Shakespeare on YouTube, which I uh, have begun to do simply by searching on Shakespeare and seeing what comes out. And there's some interesting results there. Many, many of them are literal remixes, and I thought I'd give you a little account of uh, a newcomer's view of what's going on with some of them, if there's time. Uh, but I haven't even logged in yet, so let me, let me <laughs> try to do that. These are the times when you don't remember your own mysterious password, so I hope it works. And uh, you will also forgive me, I'll be wandering a little bit through things that have other titles. I've uh, got this together at the last minute and the snows didn't help, but they are the pieces that I would like to show, and let me see where they happen to. They may be in places like St. Louis, uh, because I gave uh, uh, a paper there. 
but we're not really in, in St. Louis right now. All right, well, let me see. Oops, that's the wrong one. The wrong one anyway, sorry. <laughs> I do this for heaven. Okay, now I got to look at Wesleyan, which is another place where. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where is it now? Uh, it's going to be there someplace. Um, sorry. Oh, uh, it's Maryland. No, no, I. Wesleyan is on the bottom. The, the there it is. Okay. Yeah, and this was a paper about uh, Almereda Hamlet. In fact, a version of which was published in Diana's uh, collection, uh, which is a superb collection, and everyone should buy a copy. <laughs> of, of that. And then I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to talk. I could be home shoveling my car out of, out of the drive. Uh, now, okay, so I'll, I'll just give you a few things. What I'd like to fetch up with is, so it's a little introduction about Hamlet being a video, uh, a, a maker of videos himself, and then I'd like to look a little bit more closely at something that looks to me like a remix in an interesting way. Uh, so uh, you see uh, the movie starts with a young man walking through Times Square, and he goes into a place called Hotel Elsinore, right? and sits down at, uh, at his uh, uh, monitor. He has an elaborate suite of uh, computers and uh, digitizing decks and, uh, and other things on his desk. And he looks at one of his own videos uh, to start the film, essentially. Or we might say his prologue to the film. Let's see if we can get it to work. Up. So the sound is out. Where'd it go? I had it in. Okay, hold on, we'll need. Thanks. This is Ethan Hawke's Hamlet. I have of late, wherefore I know not. Lost all my mirth. That, that, that's how it begins. Yet to me, and then it ends. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? So there's a literal um, interpretation of Hamlet, uh, and it has several levels. Um, Ethan Hawke as Hamlet based his um, interpretation in part on the persona and life of Kurt Cobain. So it has resonances with that alienated youth culture. And he speaks Hamlet's lines 
But what seems more, almost more important to him is the, is the video that he's assembled to illustrate those lines. And, and, they want, and, and, and the images on the screen, found footage, uh, cartoon uh, dragon, uh, B-2 bomber, stealth bomber bombing a target. Uh, you have a kind of procession of um, life forms uh, illustrating evolution of humanity, but where does that evolution go? It goes into death and uh, destruction. You have the idea, the metaphor that uh, life is a kind of silly game or trick uh, that, uh, like making keys disappear in front of the video camera. Um, and so all of these are what visual ways of not only the filmmaker interpreting Shakespeare's lines in a different medium and by mixing and matching, but also of the characters doing that within, um, within the film. And, uh, and that's indeed his mode, his main mode of engaging experience is to make videos to look at them, uh, to try to understand his experience. And to a certain extent, um, because this is not a utopian but a more or less dystopic way of looking at such media use. The media use not only serves as a way for um, Ethan Hawke as Hamlet to meditate on his life, but also cuts him off in a rather more severe way than almost any Hamlet I've ever seen from the rest of the world uh, around him. Uh, I think it's a wonderful film, and it captures, uh, because it captures grief in a way that many Hamlets do not, and it's very moving. But, but part of it is this media narrative about media as a creative, um, a personal medium that doesn't sufficiently engage with the harsher realities around one and so leads to a kind of tragic close. And of course, tragedies have compensating values. And so I wanted to move from that to uh, what is maybe the main uh, use of this. You know, Hamlet does make a video a uh, film video of the mousetrap. Instead of a play within a play, you have an amateur video uh, within a play. Uh, I don't find that nearly as interesting. It's full of, uh, it has a little bit of deep throat in it. It has a little bit of life with father. So it's got all sorts of little things in it. But I don't find it nearly as important as his more informal practice of using video to think about his life. And so I wanted to show you, um, let's see. Oh, yeah, a little aside. Uh, and this, this was missed by some early commentators, and this is the sort of point of my article that I wrote for Diana, was that uh, uh, some people saw this, and I heard papers where people said, see, he's into these digital technologies. But what they missed was that his, his instrument of capture was a plastic child's camera, uh, which was only in production for two years in the late 80s. They used audio tape to make super low resolution images that could only be played back on the camera itself, hooked up to a monitor, so a pixel vision, uh, and, uh, which had had, since those years, become a cult, cult failure uh, sort of um, uh, practice, an artistic practice uh, of people, uh, usually specifically in opposition to mainstream film or doing highly personal work and their collective existence still continues there. And there are really some superb uh, full pixel vision uh, works. Michael Almerade's version, for example, of G.H. Um, Lawrence's Rocking Horse Winner, I think is the very best thing that's ever done. But there are some, 
uh, uh, done by people who were not only not major filmmakers, but they're not even independent filmmakers, but they're, uh, you know, one-off personal filmmakers who work in this medium, a couple of whom have sent me some of their work, and, and some of it's really quite remarkable. So in choosing this, the media choice is part of the remixing. It's part of saying, this character has a conflict. This character is marked as alternative. He's marked as introspective. He's marked as standing apart from the glitz and the capitalistic world that's around him in the Denmark Corporation, which his, um, which his stepfather uh, heads. Okay, so I want to show you the main, and this, this may be all, all we'll get to, but um, let's see. One more. Yeah, okay. So this is, the, this is the one that I'd like to focus on in some detail. And I'll just, I hope the audio's going to be loud enough for this. It's a very quiet clip. Is it going at all? Yeah. <laughs> We have the word to be. Here? But what I propose is uh, the word uh, to interbe. Interbe. Because uh, it's not possible to be alone, to be by yourself. You need other people in order to be. You need other beings in order to be. Not only you need father, mother, but also uncle, brother, sister society, but you also need uh, sunshine, river, uh, air, uh, trees, birds, elephants, and so on. So it is impossible to be by yourself alone. You have to interbe with everyone and everything else. And therefore, to be means to interbe. Celestial and my soul's idol. Okay, well, I want to stop. I, 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 I have a feeling that, that a lot of people have guessed what Shakespeare passage uh, this is uh, intermixing with. Uh, it's uh, to be or not to be, which doesn't appear at all, but is being and probably explicitly and consciously addressed by Thich Nhat Hanh, who is the speaker here, the Buddhist monk who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther King and then moved to France and is mainly um, active there and in the United States. And, uh, and he's, uh, his own particular kind of Buddhism, sometimes called activist Buddhism. And so he has a notion here, it's, it's, it's just a flavor, so to speak, of traditional teachings, but the flavor is to be connected to everything. Right, else. And, and that he calls interbeing through a whole series of books and devotional tapes like that. Um, he's not in the film, but you have a complicated interaction between Hamlet and the videos that he's watching, right? And the videos that are part of his life, and that, in a sense, what do I call it, a, a multitasking meditation or a, a, a mediation. He has things playing in his room that constitute the things he's thinking about or pondering. 
And again, so does my son, you know, huge monitor and things going that he's thinking about. Uh, and this is more and more a real life way to process and be serious about and meditate on things like to be or not to be. So Hamlet has that playing. And he, he attends to it very intermittently. We attend to it perhaps more closely because the camera, the camera moves in toward it as Thich Nhat Hanh speaks until the uh, frame disappears and we're looking at the uh, videotape uh, image itself, right? Whereas Hamlet seems to be half hearing and he's fiddling with his um, clamshell monitor and looking at something else. But when Thich Nhat Hanh says the crucial words, you have to interbe with everything else, father, mother, uncle, right? Maybe that wakes him up a little bit and he crosses over, over to the bed. Uh, so, but, he, but he has another, another set of video images that he's pondering at the same time and that have a kind of relation to the issues that Thich Nhat Hanh is raising. You have to be, you can't be by yourself. You have to interbe. And what's showing on his monitors are his own recollections uh, given uh, permanence by being filmed uh, in pixel vision of an encounter with uh, his girlfriend, Ophelia, in which um, the camera obviously was present, right? And it's an erotic encounter, and, and he's reliving that, uh, that moment of being with someone else, and then at the end, resolves to rush off, try to reconnect with her, and write some bad poetry. Uh, and that he doesn't, he doesn't like the look, the look of it. So this is a, a, a way of processing both the suicidal um, implications of to be or not to be, that is the question, and to be or interbe uh, as the alternative rather than that stark opposition in Hamlet's original, uh, original soliloquy. And then, yeah, sorry? I don't know what it, what it is. I mean, that's another remix element. I mean, it sounds very much like a musician commits suicide. Is that right? Yeah. Well, he's thinking, yeah. Well, that's great. <laughs> great. So what's, what, uh, what's say, uh, as uh, people who studied Mishima used to say, you know, so that's great. Uh, sorry, but um, it, makes, it, it helps to make the point. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, oh, yes. Uh, so as, as he's uh, countering these two in video inputs, there's also there's a curious way uh, in which um, the concerns of the TV monitor are reflected in the, in the image. And uh, this is, this is a, a nice example of um, uh, remixing, because I had my students try to identify elements in, uh, in this film. It's highly referential uh, in an encrypted way. And one of the ways that I don't deal at all with in my article that Mark Thornton Burnett does in a, in a long piece is that uh, Hamlet has um, um, indicators and markers of Irish politics all over the place in his room. It was densely crowded with an identification to, uh, the, Irish, to, to the Irish cause for example. But you wouldn't know them unless you stop the DVD, have a really good look. And DVD films now are made to do this. So as you see, as we clo close in on Julia Stiles, she covers her face, uncovers her face with this book. And the book has, you can barely make out the words, um, living, dying. 
So uh, my friend, my one of my students undertook to to uh, identify the image, and he said, "Well, it's the it's the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Well, there is a title of like that that's separate from the Book of the Dead." Uh, so so I went in line and got the the, um, the 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 image of the front page. It didn't look all, anything like this this person. So I kept searching until I found the actual face, and it's Krishnamurti. So within the image, right, as, and that it's on living and dying uh, by Krishnamurti. So it's, an, it's a marker within the second video of this interest in Eastern religions that uh, pervades the film and is a counterplayer with, um, uh, with um, the um, uh, speech about uh, being and not being that Hamlet that's authentically in the text. So th this, and I think one doesn't quite get this film unless you see this interplay and his use of, uh, what was you say, use of remixed uh, video as a mode of thought, you know, and it's taken that seriously. If I had more time, and this is one of the things that's going on in Shakespeare film, I wouldn't say generally, but I would say in the best slash most popular, most artistically significant uh, Shakespeare films, um, so if I had more time, I would also show you uh, a, a, a rather elaborate um, remixing that um, Michael Hoffman does in, in Midsummer Night's Dream in his use of opera and its association so that the opera that is being used on the soundtrack sometimes comes into the diegesis, it sometimes comes into what is going on, Hippolyta is listening to a record, um, Bottom turns out to be the only guy in this fantasy world set in 1900 who knows how to work a record player. And the whole magic of the forest comes not out of the fairies, but out of Castadiva from Norma. So there's, there's a, a continual allegory of the importance of recorded music in the early part of the 20th century. And in a piece that I'm working on now, I try to extend this so that um, in, in the following way, you know, I'm not going to show any images of it, but that uh, there's an insistent, though somewhat occulted, association between Kevin Klein as Bottom and Enrico Caruso. There are all sorts of parallels. So that when, when uh, Bottom is disappointed, what plays in the soundtrack is Una Fortiva Lagrima, uh, Caruso's first success, not his first uh, role, but his first success at La Scala, which was also. Um, his first success at the Met and at Covent Garden and the last uh, uh, role that he played at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and was uh, a key element in the very first successful phonograph record of classical music ever made in 1902. So um, uh, Hoffman, people say, how can this be? This is a popular film. Um, we make a big mistake. These are learned works. You know, they are, They're pure and simply learned works, as are many of the remixed videos and music, you know, in the sense of having mastered a large tradition and then being able to move around in a learned way within that tradition. And Michael Hoffman, uh, in terms that we, we know more about than we know, than most of us know about the, the hip hop credentials in this area, is a Rhodes Scholar, so that prob probably at Oxford, studying English literature, you know. So to say that he's inserting co complex intertextualities well, that would be what he would have learned. Well, maybe not at Oxford, but he certainly would have learned it if he were here. Uh, you know, uh, how to do that from, from my uh, colleagues, if, if from no one else. So um, 
th that's the way this, uh, that's the way that film works. It's insistently uh, keeps up this parallel and, uh, uh, and remixed opera music is a counterplayer. And, uh, and I would say also an aggressive counterplayer. It doesn't just interpret Shakespeare. It says Shakespeare could have done more with this material because these uh, artisans, these lower class people who have aspirations to the arts, do not in fact get to live that out in a dignified way. Now they don't either in this film, but there are all sorts of allusions to the possibilities that artisans and people from artisan families would in fact become artists and how that might play out. It's, a, it's almost a reproach in a certain way to Shakespeare. So the, the, that, that's the kind of thing that I've been working on and I do think it fits the remix rubric. I probably should stop, maybe if uh, in the question and answer period we could see some of the, well, is it enough time for another five minutes or should, it, should, I, um, should we stop for questions? So, okay, I'll just show you, let's see if I can uh, pull it up. Um, maybe just one. Give you a quick, quick summary of the things I'm not going to show you. A lot, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the remixes uh, in YouTube are literal remixes. Uh, most of them bad. Most of them are not nearly as good as, let's say, the top remixes that take the Matrix and mix it with Japanese anime or something like that. They're really pretty minor, but they do, th they do. Th in fact, there is a Shakespeare Reloaded that draws on, uh, on imagery from from the Matrix films. Uh, there's. Uh, there, there are Star Wars um, remixes. In fact, there's an, uh, there is what I would call an almost honorific Star Wars uh, element in many of the amateur Shakespeare videos. That is to say, just because it's a, it's a YouTube video, sometimes there's nothing else, nothing whatever to do with Star Wars, but when Banquo and, uh, and, uh, and, and Macbeth fight, they fight with, uh, uh, with uh, lightsabers, right? <laughs> just because that's a marker. Or a film that has nothing to do with Star Wars except that it uh, is a version of Shakespeare will be called um, something like uh, Skywalker Films, you know, things like that. Or there's a version of Taming of the Shrew where uh, the character, uh, there's a character called Lucentio, right, instead of Lucentio. So the, all the characters have names that are partly from Star Wars and par partly from, uh, uh, from Shakespeare. Um, uh, so there's that. There's a tremendous amount of the three Romeo and Juliets. I'd say those are the ones that pop up the most, right? And there's sometimes Valentine. This is my Valentine to you. I love you. I've remixed Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. It wasn't romantic enough yet, you know? <laughs> Sorry. I had to pick out the really good bits and put really sappier music to it. So that, that, that's why, because I, why? Because I love you. So, so there's, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of the 96 remixes and uh, a Shakespeare in Love, right? Uh, and sometimes it specifically say, oh, th this is for my, my beloved in some form or another. Um, and the, the, the tradition seems especially strong in Brazil. I don't know why that is, uh, but, it, but it's a fact. There's, there's a, lot, a lot there. And then there are the, what, what uh, Henry Jenkins taught us to understand as the slash uh, versions. And again, entirely unnecessary, it would seem. So you have um, uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet meets Brokeback Mountain, right? And then they'll have the homoerotic uh, sections of the Zeffirelli um, 
uh, of the, Ze the Zeffirelli film, uh, which were noticed uh, the day after the film was released in the New York Times, you know, by Redonna Adams. The, the film has a, a softly homosexual cast, she said. So, you know, at this point, it's not really news, but people want to show you uh, what that what that uh, what that line is in um, in um, uh, in Zeffirelli and, and also in the uh, drag scenes in in Lerman. But I, uh, let's see. I think I have one, there's one though that um, a number of my colleagues have said is the best, and I ought to look at. So I did. Let's see if I can find it. Um, and maybe some of you have already seen this. Uh, and I hope it works. <coughs> Something's coming. Uh, what's all this, John? It's Peter Sellers. Uh, what's all this, John? It's Peter Sellers. Can you hear? <laughs> it has been a hard day's night. And I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. <laughs> you know I work all day to get you money to buy you things. And it's worth it just to hear you say, you'll give me everything. That's why I love to come home. Because when I get you alone, you know I feel okay. <laughs> when I'm home, everything seems to be right. When I'm home, feeling you, <laughs> holding me, hi, hi. It's been a half day. I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. Okay, so I, I, I think s some things will be, will be obvious to some and not others. But this is a kind of four-part, you know, where there's several things being remixed at the same time. Uh, the Beatles are being mixed with the character of um, with, uh, 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 Shakespeare's uh, Richard III, although it's not actually from Richard III, it's from Henry VI, part three, that Olivier included in, in his film. And this is the exact setup of uh, uh, the, um, 
Winters of our discontent speech in Olivier Thummim, and Sellers is doing Olivier's voice, and he's doing it in a, in a wonderful way, but in a way that does uh, so, so many different things at once. I mean, for what it, 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 it very gently suggests the insipidity of the Beatles' lyrics, you know, when they're right there, you know, and yet, uh, and then infuses that with a slightly sadistic uh, persona that Olivier may have begun when he did Richard III, but certainly continued right on to those Nazi dentists and so on in, in later, <laughs> later times. And, and, uh, right? and so that's part of uh, Olivier as a lover. There's always this sort of dark side to that as well that he's bring, he brings out. But also, so, and he keeps, he, keep, he does what I like. He does that discipline thing of keeping it going for the whole thing. It's not a one-off. It's not a little joke. He, he tries to make the thing work over the course of this brief but wonderful um, uh, video. And, uh, and then there's the third, uh, there's another thing that he does, which is that there are parts of it that are not Shakespeare, uh, that are not Richard III, that are not Olivier, but uh, Peter Sellers. And... Uh, it makes it his own. And I, and I wanted to say that because, I mean, especially those wonderful ways of uh, the wonderful meanings that he gives to feeling all right or being okay and those particular <laughs> things uh, with that wink. And that's not really an Olivier move at all. And it's certainly not, uh, a, 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 certainly not a Richard III uh, move. So, and, and that I wanted to put in as a kind of plea for authorship because I think these things, uh, you know, there's a lot of, lot of theory about the dissolution of, of the author or the work. And yet, as I look through these materials that are made indeed out of other materials, I'm struck, even at the, even at the most casual uh, amateur level uh, that these films sometimes are, uh, of a strong sense of something having been crafted by a particular person to be a specific kind of work. So, I, you know, it's kind of interesting. And I, I think uh, that comes across here. Now, um, I think I might have rashly said I was going to show you one thing, but there's another thing. <laughs> there's a couple of others to, to see. I don't know which the best one is going to be. Maybe this one. Um, oh, well, no, uh, sorry. Just a moment of um, control click for some reason in this. Uh, of the Olivier himself, just a reminder. Then you can see that some of the tricks that Sellers does, like being in the chair and then approaching the camera and seating back, actually follow fairly closely. And it may, for people that don't know this film, remind you, well, I'll introduce you to it. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean, buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful... So that's just uh, a brief reminder, and um, 
you know, this, this peculiar intonation, I'm sure my Shakespeare colleagues know, know about this. Uh, in in uh, Olivier's biography, he said that he based the, his characterization on Jed Harris, a Broadway director that he'd worked with in a Noel Coward play, whom he absolutely hated and apparently so did everyone else. And so he worked his mannerisms into his portrayal of Richard III. And Jed Harris is the, is the only Broadway director to have two great cultural icons uh, make fun of him because Disney also uh, based The Big Bad Wolf on, um, <laughs> on Jed Harris. And so in my own uh, internal mad remixing, I started looking at Big Bad Wolf clips. And there was an astonishing range of those. And then there is a hip hop version of The Big Bad Wolf that was then remixed back with the videos of The Big Bad Wolf and so on. So, so what, what this means is there's, there's some kind of like degrees of separation in, are reduced. There's a compression of the cultural, social, uh, um, um, accessibility, on the accessibility level. Everything's being brought close together. So you can almost immediately get things that are relevant to juxtapose. Uh, there are parts of the piece that I did on Hoffman that I digitized film for that now I can, instead of digitizing a, a, a clip of um, that 1902 recording by Caruso, I can at least get the, uh, uh, I can get the 1904 version with somebody actually placing that on a turntable and playing it on YouTube and just click on that, something that somebody else has put into the public stream so that we can use it. So I want to end just by suggesting that there's tremendous, first of all, I think there is something a bit different about remixing and the culture of remixing as such, not that it didn't have uh, predecessors and forebears. And, and the other thing is that uh, there are tremendous educational possibilities in the accumulating video archive that is out there. Uh, in addition to sellers, which most of my colleagues didn't know before they looked at YouTube and now love, there's a John Barrymore doing uh, Richard III. There are rare clips of other things uh, that you just can't get elsewhere that someone had taped off the air and uh, in a special and then put on online. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> there's one guy that does <coughs> uh, has, uh, I, I guess, around 50 different ordinary people reading Sonnet 116. You know, he's called the Shakespeare Cowboy. And it's kind of fascinating because it has this wonderful uh, populist um, ideology behind it. But then if people criticize him, he starts arguing in the most obscene language with the people that don't like uh, what, his, what his readers are reading. That's a fascinating one. And there's also some wonderful uh, work on other sonnets by individuals who just like those sonnets and are putting them online. But online, they become part of a remixable stream where you can click on five more of those and see comparative um, instances. So that's what I have to say so far. It's a progress report. I did actually propose a paper to a scholarly conference on Shakespeare on YouTube on the theory that in 14 months I might learn enough to speak intelligently about it. So this is a start. Sorry to use you as a guinea pig in that endeavor. Thank you. the positioning of those microphones is a, is a hint that um, speakers might want to come up to them um, to say what you have to say. I think we're recording this. Yes. Um, yeah, we are recording it.
Um, I just mentioned that you didn't have to wait for YouTube for the for the uh, Olivier. It's at the end of a a, a released uh, C, uh, VCR tape. Uh, the sellers. Yeah. Wonderful. At the end of a, it's it's. Oh. I think it's connected to a Hard Day's Night, or it's um, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's show. It's one of them that they have it at the stuff. end. Yeah. yeah, and they, it's they, from the Goon Show. Yeah, the they Goon go show. on to do um, Pyramus and Thisbe. Yeah. Yeah. John as uh, John in drag, yeah. which overlaps with the idea that there has been burlesque versions of this for two, you know, since again the Restoration, we've had versions that are, are I think, in that sense, remixes that are sustained remixes. Yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. absolutely. So why are we? I'm thinking back to your paper, Diana, and, the, and Shakespeare as being on this sort of continuum of, of remixes going forward over time, and also. You know, we didn't talk about this explicitly, but stretching back through all his sources. So if Shakespeare is a kind of point on the continuum, why are we still talking about something as being Shakespeare than, rather than being Tate or Verdi or I can't remember the names of the sources. It's been too long. Yeah. Well, we are calling it Verdi. I, I do think we are calling it, it Verdi. When, when we like it a lot, we acknowledge the, the remake. When we don't think as highly of it, we think of it as bastardized Shakespeare. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's partly a, a, a collective judgment, I think, of the quality of the work um, as much as anything. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Uh, I'm, I'm not, what was the question again? I was listening to what you said. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I guess the, the other to, obvious yeah, thing, which, which I, I didn't, with. I didn't yeah. go into today, is um, the whole notion of authorship and the way yeah, in the romantic the period you, you, you solidify the exceptional status of Shakespeare as an aesthetic figure who's mm -hmm. above and beyond the norm uh, of, of society, of art, of anything. Um, and at that point, you know, using him then, you want to keep him in the picture, mm -hmm. fairly obviously, yeah. Hi. I my name is Tim Jackson from New England Institute of Art. Uh, I have tickets next month to see the Worcester group, Elizabeth LeCompte's, uh, I guess, remix of Hamlet. Yeah. Her last one was uh, what Gertrude Stein's Dr. Faustus mixed with Olga's House of Pain, mm -hmm. which was interesting. Not sure what I was seeing. But I, I was wondering if you um, are familiar or can talk about any extreme remixes in the theater itself. I got here a little late, so I don't know if you spoke about that. I mean, I, you mentioned um, Worcester Group, I think of Peter Sellers as kind of the ant antithetical avant-garde mm. to the Worcester Group in that he uh, announces his socio-political engagement. So when he did his Merchant, you know, it was all videos and, and reflection on um, the story of the Merchant of Venice in a mo modern context. So a lot of version, I mean, if you're thinking theater, Broadly, he said something's coming, and of course, immediately when he's talking about Romeo and Juliet, I think West Side Story. I mean, I, I can do a whole mainstream as well, obviously, of of musical versions that remix and connect with contemporary issues. Um, I'm more. I do tend to go in that direction more than the um, the uh, announcing itself as purely aesthetic version, or or so obscure in its politics that I can't figure out how it links to the socio-political moment. Um, there's a lot of that linkage to the socio-political use of Shakespeare in that regard in the theater. Yeah. 
I mean, it's almost hard to say what isn't Shakespeare remixed on, on the stage when you're in a different stage situation. You know, when you have 400 years later, often pointing out one of the reasons people go to the musical or to opera is that you've got heightened language, which is not normative for our stage anymore. Um, so how do you, if you want to sustain Shakespeare's language, you're, um, you know, you're forced into some alternative version of modern theater, which has to be in counterpoint to the norms of modern <laughs> theater. So you're always having that sort of medial remix whenever you do a modern Shakespeare. Um, with the possible exception of William Cole, you know, and those attempts to do Elizabethan style recreations or the globe, the new globe when they do all male uh, in Elizabethan dress, which I find more like simulacra, you know, going to Disneyland to watch mm. a, a not authentic attempt to <clears throat> ignore the fact that you're in a different time and place and a different socio-political situation and that it, it's almost, you know, it, it's odd not to take that into account, yeah. Sort of like going to Stratford on Avon and sort of, it feels so fake, mm. actually. The town, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, town. the town is, is just one big nice greetings from Stratford and Avon mug. I mean, that's the fun thing at the beginning of Shakespeare and Locke where he, he's doodling and he's got writer's block, so he just throws the thing in a mug and it says, you know, greetings from Stratford on Avon, just to remind you of his own commodification, you know, as, as a figure. But I think some of these, some, when it's not, an gender switching when it's not an attempt to recreate Shakespearean stuff in a sort of legacy way can be really interesting. Absolutely. So the uh, and and uh, fascinating seen fascinating remixes in that sense of uh, all women productions. Uh, there was one mm. one of uh, uh, Henry V, a company of women that was just wonderful. Yeah. I thought or the cross um, casting uh, in Deborah Warner's Richard II. That creates a completely re-seen version of the play. I thought. I thought. Mm -hmm. Well, some disagreed and said, "No, no, her, she was really just trying to be a good male Richard II." Yeah, it was I, Fiona Shaw. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, Fiona Shaw. I didn't. I didn't think so. I thought there was a continuous tension and dynamic. And then there was a one really wonderful um, Japanese director who works with an all-male cast, but they're grown-up men with full beards. So you have a King Lear. Do you remember his name, The Tale of Lear? I can't, can't recall his name. But that his troupe is all uh, mature men, mature yeah. bearded men, so that you have the three daughters of Lear uh, uh, who seem to be evincing a particularly male kind of uh, nastiness rather than female. And everything makes you think in that, in that man's um, work, and it was really quite wonderful. I mean, but, a more extreme yeah. case of that, and we haven't talked about global Shakespeare other it's than, Suzuki. you know, it, yeah. it, and also, yeah, Suzuki, and also thinking about things like the Katakali um, versions that do Othello, but they do it as Katakali. It's a real remix in your sense yeah. of that, of trying to sustain two things at once. And there's been a lot of wondering whether that actually works, also the South African version of Macbeth, uh, Macbeth trying to do Zulu theater and Macbeth at the same time, and it brings out, you know, where the, where the cultures don't mix, really. I mean, I think more than trying to just do a seamless thing, again, I think it's where the fractures show often that is the most interesting learning that comes out of it, what you can't just transfer. And that's where you can sort of not blame Shakespeare. I actually think it's less, um, when Hoffman is showing you that, because he's turn of the century there, I mean, how would Shakespeare three centuries before the rise of the middle class, you know, 
has gotten to where it is, where he sets that tale, I think it feels less like a timeless sort of Shakespeare should have done this instead. It's more a recognition that history has happened, that history has occurred, and so if you're going to retell the story in a different moment, you have to be conscious of that historical moment. Yeah, but few do. I mean, the few work with that very yeah. much. Even, and that's the thing, the period pieces are often, period settings are often disappointing because they don't make it vital, they just yeah. set it in a certain place. Well, now that everybody yeah. thinks the 19th century means, is people talk about Brahma, oh, he put it in the past, they're all in 19th century clothes. Well, that's just like being in the Renaissance. You know, that, <laughs> everything before 1900 is collapsed into the past. Um, and so those historical distinctions aren't usually used with the fine grain quality that Hoffman Absolutely. certainly does. I, think, I mean, yeah, I think yeah. it's, it's more interesting because it isn't simply criticizing Shakespeare or, in, or endorsing Shakespeare, is I guess what I'd say, is that the more interesting works want to relocate. First question is I'd like you to expand a little bit on the other cultures that you mentioned when Shakespeare is translated. Um, and the other thing is when uh, Shakespeare films are set in a modern setting, um, is there a, a merit in keeping the Shakespeare's text as in uh, Romeo plus Juliet, for example? Uh, or is a film like uh, O? Is it, I forget the, the director of that mm -hmm. film, but which one uh, is a better work, in your opinion? I don't think it's a category analysis. I mean, that's, I guess, what I was trying to get at in looking at the specific cases. Um, it's not all bad or good. It's not better always to do it this way in modern dress. I mean, you can always make the argument that Shakespeare did most of, most of the characters in Shakespeare's plays are in modern dress or in some vague form of the past dress when they want to signal past, which would be more like what I just criticized Brana for doing. But we live in a different age in terms of, of our relationship to historicism, so that it doesn't function the same way if you do it in that sort of vague past. Um, I think the immediacy of some of those films is really quite wonderful. I mean, your Almereda is certainly trying to make it in the present. Um, that seems to work. There are some others that don't work so well. Were, were you asking about films that sort of abandon the language entirely? I wasn't sure yeah. what. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Versus the ones that keep the text in the present moment. <clears throat> yeah, you know, it's funny. So we sort of live within these professional shifting sands, and um, I guess 15 years ago that people would have assumed that it couldn't be Shakespeare if, it, if the language wasn't there, and now we almost make the opposite. I certainly do. I fall into thinking, oh, yeah, well, like 10 things, uh, 10 things uh, I hate about her is a Shakespeare you, film. And then wouldn't you say this, the, the profession has shifted in that, totally. yeah. in that way? And I'd say, actually, my yeah. students out there who studied, um, I've watched the shift there where Ankara this time was the most um, popular of the Shakespeare remixes, that you felt it was the most consistent in a way, in its own terms, even though you've shifted culture, you've shifted language, you've shifted all the things. So yeah, I think we've moved much further in that direction. What, I think what, it, it may say something, though, about the loss of um, language-centered analysis, right? Yeah. Culturally. But there's, a, there's an issue that relates to this, and there were question, two or three questions back. 
about um, Shakespeare in foreign languages or foreign settings or modernized settings. And, and one of the issues that's, that's uh, hard to deal with is the issue of uh, whether or not real dual cultural literacy is necessary to appreciate them. You know, so it's easy. I know, I mean, I've written on, uh, uh, on Throne of Blood, on a Japanese film. I think it's the only non-English speaking work that I've, that I've written about. And I like what I wrote, but I don't know if it's right. If I, if uh, Kurosawa was someone who always uh, insisted on the dual inspiration of his Shakespeare works, sometimes excessively, pretending that it had nothing to do with King Lear, the run had nothing to do with King Lear, that appeared in the Times after the premiere. Of course, he had to sort of take it back, since there were three sons instead of daughters and a fool and a conflagration of the whole world. And, but that was his initial position. I, uh, was, I, oh no, it's just by chance. Well, of course it wasn't. And in his autobiography, he talks about usually beginning with the samurai story and then adding uh, Shakespearean elements to it as he goes along. But few scholars, at least in the West, have reconstructed what the input of those of that Japanese source is. So that if it's truly a bicultural work, as it appears to be, it really needs bicultural competence to fully understand it, I would think. You yeah, know. there's been um, a couple of good pieces on the use of no, the no flute and, and other dimensions of, of those versions. It's true, but that also gets at the question of, is it better for whom? I mean, a lot of what we're pointing out is, is the more you're in a certain loop of knowledge, the more enjoyable it's going to be. Um, as, you're, as we're talking about global commodities and they move to different places on the globe, they're going to function you know, more and less successfully for different people. What we do is we just try to bring out what's interesting that we know, I think, of, of that particularity. Uh, so if we can't compare uh, O with, uh, with Lerman's uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet, can we compare uh, that film, Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, with Almerida's Hamlet, for example? I, I thought that Almerida's Hamlet is so much more a successful film because it, you know, it goes a, you know, a step further in, re in remixing. It, it's a little bit uh, a new style in filmmaking. Uh, in a way, so I think I thought that was uh, so m more successful. So, can we make that comparison? If we, you know, if we really can't compare uh, Shakespeare text versus uh, versus everyday speech. Well, I, I could say something about that. I don't know if it would be sensible. I think uh, I, I do think uh, the Almereda work is a more more substantial and thoughtful. Um, but it looked as if, when, when, when Lerman, uh, Romeo plus Julia came out in 96, it was so innovative in style that it looked as if it would uh, be the new way to do Shakespeare. Um, but, and, and then it didn't turn out to be so, and I think some of his later work was less impressive. Because for, um, for some of the reasons that, that made Romeo and Julia um, questionably successful in my view. And that is uh, ha having to do with what it all adds up to. You know, I think he's, a, he's absolutely brilliant, but he has a kind of circular vision where the oppositional culture gets folded into the 
celebrity culture in, in, in a way. And so the lovers really don't establish a firm position outside of that which they oppose in the way, for instance, that does happen in West Side Story, right? So uh, because um, they participate in that world too fully, perhaps. So I think, I think in a lot of ways, um, the stylistic breakthrough is starting to seem like um, a little loop that didn't influence enough, it, didn't, it wasn't a turning point that people, and people including I, thought it was uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and so, but I mean, no, this always goes on. Who knows? I could be wrong about that, and people can make a, a stronger argument for, for it as a work. Um, if it, but you know, a lot of that's one of the reasons I do Shakespeare in films because nobody notices that I actually am concerned with whether uh, these films are impressive works of art or not. Whereas in literature, the um, that kind of discourse is more closely policed. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm Jonathan Baskin, and I'd like to go a little off topic from yeah. film and ask if you've had any thought about Shakespeare the video game. Um, it seems to me that the immersive experience, the real mashup, is to be Shakespeare. It isn't just to manipulate the images, it's to actually control the plot to some degree and, and be immersed in the experience. I, I played the Lord of the Rings games with my eight-year-old daughter and had a heck of a lot more immersive experience in th those texts, if you will, than I ever did reading them. So I'm just wondering if one, if you've ever given any thought to the video game as a medium for Shakespeare, and if there's anything that's particularly helpful in the text that would lead to that, or maybe prohibitive. I know there's a guy named Ed Castronova in Indiana who's written a lot about why Shakespeare won't work as a game. And I'm just wondering if he changed his mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, he did. Uh, now there is an Arden game that got a MacArthur Grant million dollars or so. And uh, they're building an Arden game that should be released uh, uh, next, about, in about a year's time. It's an online thing? Yes. Yeah, a, a massive online game. This is we uh, Arden of the Arden editions? No. no. Just Arden <laughs> Forest. But we tried. We started it uh, a, a while before that um, here uh, when the Royal Shakespeare Company came over and we were finding things to do with them, given that we don't have performance spaces at MIT in which they yeah. could perform. Um, we decided to think of the other possibilities here. And we worked for a while on a Tempest game and thinking about a prototype, which clarified as we were working on it about the things you can and can't do. You don't want to try to replicate the narrative, obviously. You have to think of it in a, as an immersive environment. So we were looking at, at Prospero's Island and thinking about ways through that world and trying to get the kinds of, I think, density of craft and um, beauty that would seem to be the part of the spirit of the Shakespearean text into the visuals in that place. It, it, that becomes so, sort of a high art game, though, um, perhaps not quite the same as the normative marketplace wants right now. Yeah. Uh, there, there's another way in which uh, video games and Shakespeare performance, Shakespeare film relate, and that's the way what Julie Taymor does in Titus, which is to uh, construct her cinematic space as if it were a surround game with a young visitor from the 20th century making choices within that world uh, as if you were uh, playing with simulated 
figures. And I think that, that is a, a very, very impressive. I mean, there's one tiny scene where they actually play an arcade game. Well, that's the, uh, where the bad guy, Chiron and Demetrius, play an arcade game before they, they uh, or after they uh, uh, commit mayhem and rape and, and, and uh, um, mutilation. So, um, early Shakespeare tragedy. So, um, but that moment is just a part of their imagined world, whereas what Tamar does as director is set things up so often, it's as if you were in that, either in a video, a surround video game, or you were in some of the planned and prototyped versions of interactive cinema, where you can make choices in a world that's unfolding um, in front of you. And so I, th I think games are, uh, and of course in many, many other films, but this is one Shakespeare film that uses game-like construction of space. The one thing I, I'd point out though is you were saying be like Shakespeare uh, in controlling things, and it seems to me people who love the, the drama, the world of, of drama, narrative drama, tend to like the idea that you don't have one controlling narrative voice. That is, you don't have one perspective that determines everything even though we know there was a playwright involved. I would argue from the beginning, Shakespeare was, was not the only guy involved in creating those plays. Richard Burbage was a really good actor. Without him, you don't write you know, quite the parts like Hamlet that require that presence. You need a, a, a history of parts that you can play off of clowning for several hundred years before that brings expertise and helps shape the Shakespeare play. And I think one of the things we haven't talked today is about the relationship of liveness and the, the dimension of theatricality that over 400 years does stay um, rather important and works so well in Shakespeare. I mean, we can move it to the screen, but we've lost one of the dimensions of how it was created. So if you're trying to be like Shakespeare, it would be more appropriate, I think, to go out and do a group interaction game uh, and run around and do role-playing games than to just master the narrative. I'm not sure I would like to be like Shakespeare. I would be content to have met Peter Sellers. I think, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, I'm happy just to have heard Ethan Hawke. Yeah. I thought that was really fabulous. I spend so much of my time in books that when I actually encounter performance, especially live performance, but even, even screen performance, just the sort of the dimension of the voice is really striking. And sort yeah. of, you know, I spent so much time reading these texts that you almost feel like, well, how can, how can anybody actually perform, say, to be or not to be mm -hmm. in a way that's going to move jaded me or even feel real? Yeah. Right? And so in that, that first Ethan Hawke speech, uh, sort of what a, what a piece of work is, is a man, the sort of the, the silence when you're sort of waiting for the other words, the, the temporal dimension, the silence of waiting for the word that you know should be there is really powerful. And then that, the sort of the to be or not speech, I thought that was actually brilliant with that sort of the syncopation. Because I think I mean, you don't have to have been to Oxford and done a lot with English literature to know that the sort of that tagline to be or not to be that is the question it's the one line that everybody knows and so you can sort of play off the the knowledge of the audience and sort of I've heard that song before say not to be to enter be not to be to enter be it's like this sort of syncopation that is so cool <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I mean there are two yeah. different dimensions you're talking about one in, in terms of liveness and remembering that the body 
is where the voice comes from, um, makes every time you say to be or not to be a different event, right? Tonight it's different from tomorrow. That's what performance is all about, so it's in that moment. So that's got an urgency. What you see in screen versions is this tension because, as we all know also, there are multiple ways of reading any line, but you've got to make a choice at a certain moment and playing against the expectation. It's an Olivier, I mean, it was famous that Olivier, those pauses just to make it seem at the time more real, more, un unlike John Gielgud's beautiful mellifluous predictable tones um, can't be beat in their own style, Olivier would chop it up a little. You see it even more with Campbell Scott there where, you know, there's more things in heaven and earth than in your philosophy, <laughs> and you know everybody's waiting for what he's going to do with that. And you feel that, I, I think, a little anxiety about how you can still make it fresh. When he does To Be or Not To Be, he does it filmed lying like this um, on the floor just to disconcert you a little, um, to put you, so you're not hearing it as just another version of, oh yeah, here we go again. It's hard. <laughs> I think there's also, are we not invited back to, um, to Senior House? Yes. For a sort of informal conversation? Yeah. I would just say people should also remember what a piece of work is the man from the musical Hair, which I, personally <laughs> I find one of the most memorable ways I, I learned most by Shakespeare is by listening to rock songs. Sting, of course, has sonnets uh, in, in his work. So I, I, I think that's an important genre we didn't really milk enough today. Um, and I would actually, just to say Shakespeare, if there's a Shakespeare the remix, it's probably going to be Love's Labor is Lost, which is not the most transportable, precisely because it's reacting to other art forms of its moment in the way we're talking about. And I think that's why things that are 20 years old or 10 years old, it's harder for these things to sustain themselves, the, the very, very much embedded works are so much of their moment. So we're gonna keep having more Shakespeare remixes to play with. Um, people worry about the exhaustion of these fields, uh, but it's a different model of, of how the scholarship or the work or the creative arts work over time. Thank you both. Thank you. Just pull your chair back. I can't see anything. Crawl around on the floor. It's right behind your floor. Oh,